Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. We start off this episode with our monthly roundup of prison disturbances, as compiled by Perilous Chronicle. On Memorial Day, a group of juveniles gained control of their unit after one reportedly stole keys from a staff member and released others. The juveniles refused orders from staff and law enforcement until threatened with police dogs, according to reports. Family members who were on the phone with their children during the event reported threats of lateral violence between detainees, and officials report that two were injured during the event. On the evening of May 29th, a disturbance and attack on guards was reported at the Remen Hall Pierce County Juvenile Detention Center in Tacoma, Washington. According to reports, several prisoners detained at the Juvenile Detention Center refused to go to their rooms, attempted to break windows and fight staff, poured shampoo over the floor to make the entrance slippery, barricaded doors, covered surveillance cameras, and destroyed other property. Some of the disturbance was live streamed on Instagram. Over $35,000 in damages was reported. No injuries or no use of force was reported. The prisoners allegedly surrendered a few hours later by telling the police that arrived on the scene were done. Since the disturbance, five prisoners have been charged with prison riot and first-degree malicious mischief. On Wednesday, May 31st, three prisoners at the Reception and Treatment Center in Lincoln, Nebraska, attacked five guards. According to a news release by the Nebraska Department of Corrections, the prisoners were intoxicated and being held in a maximum security unit. The prisoners reportedly attacked the guards by punching, kicking, and stabbing the guards with makeshift weapons. All five guards received medical treatment at the hospital for serious but non-life-threatening injuries. Two other guards were injured during the response to the incident, but not due to being assaulted. Two prisoners at the Northwest Community Corrections Center in Bowling Green, Ohio, jumped a fence and fled the facility. The pair were recaptured the following day about 25 miles away in Fostoria, Ohio. Another individual was also arrested and charged with felony obstruction of justice in association with the escape. On June 1st, seven detainees escaped from the Barry County Jail in southwestern Missouri after overpowering guards and locking them in a cell. According to their captors, the detainees had told one of the guards that they needed their blood pressure checked before the rest of the group attacked. Six of the escapees were arrested within the first eight hours of the ensuing manhunt. One detainee remained at large. The escape comes almost exactly a year after three detainees at the same facility escaped after cutting a hole through the ceiling. On Thursday, June 1st, two prisoners escaped from Adams County Jail in Brighton, Colorado. Allegedly, the prisoners escaped while being transported to court, though no additional information has been provided. One prisoner was recaptured immediately. The other prisoner was recaptured shortly after in the surrounding area. On the morning of June 22nd, three prisoners escaped from Todd County Jail in Elkton, Kentucky. 
Allegedly, the prisoners escaped by stealing a truck while on work detail. As of July 9, 2023, none of the three prisoners have been captured. On Monday, June 26, two prisoners escaped from the Henry County Correctional Facility in Paris, Tennessee. According to reports, they opened the ceiling of their cell and crawled through a skylight on the roof. One prisoner was recaptured eight miles from the facility shortly after escaping. The other prisoner was recaptured the next day, June 27th, about 30 miles away in a neighboring county. On June 27th, three prisoners escaped from the Henley Young Patton Juvenile Justice Center in Jackson, Mississippi. According to the reports, the prisoners had an altercation with a guard and another prisoner, overpowered the guard's keys, and used a shank to escape. The guard and other prisoner had minor injuries. No severe injuries were reported. On July 3rd, one prisoner was captured in Yazoo City, about 48 miles away from the juvenile center. On July 8th, the other two prisoners were recaptured in Jackson, Mississippi. On Wednesday, June 28th, approximately 40 prisoners at the Silverdale Detention Center engaged in a riot in response to a contraband search being conducted by the facility's administration. According to Hamilton County sheriffs, the prisoners became unruly and refused to comply with orders shortly after the contraband sweep began. No injuries to staff or prisoners were reported. At 12.45 p.m. on Friday, June 30th, two prisoners escaped from the Cannon County Jail in Woodbury, Tennessee. According to reports, the prisoners escaped through fences near the recreation area. On Saturday, July 1st, one prisoner was recaptured in the Smithville area of DeKalb County. As of July 9th, the other prisoner has yet to be recaptured. On Monday, July 3rd, two prisoners escaped from the St. Francis County Jail in Forest City, Arkansas. The sheriff's office said they escaped through a fence in the recreation yard. It was also reported that they made their beds to make it seem like they were there. One prisoner was recaptured on Thursday, July 6, at a hotel in Forest City. As of July 9, 2023, the other prisoner has yet to be recaptured. And now we return to the second part of our conversation between Nicole Siegel and Amanda Hall. Last week, Hall talked to us about how her firsthand experience of incarceration led her to her current work in prisoner and reentry support. And now she talks through her continuing advocacy through Dream.org and the ACLU. I'd love to hear more about how your experience with the women at the Healing Place for Women and the ideas that they had influenced the kind of policy work you did with the ACLU and what kinds of policies in general you think can help move our world towards one that does not rely on cages, punishment to deal with social harm? Yeah, absolutely. So my job at the ACLU of Kentucky, um, as I mentioned, I started very briefly as only an organizer, but quickly um, got more involved in policy. So I became a lobbyist um, for the ACLU at the Kentucky legislature. And I remember going into that space, um, being in those committee hearings, and I would look around 
there's a lobbyist for Department of Corrections. There's one for the Judges Association and the Prosecutors Association. There's the sheriffs. There's uh, the FOP. There's the Kentucky State Police lobbyists. There's, you know, a lobbyist for Aramark. I could keep going. And I'm like, what is going on? Where are we? <laughs> you know, um, there may be a, a rally in the rotunda every once in a while, um, but we weren't a consistent presence there. But like I said, the other folks were in those hallways every day, every day in meetings with legislators, every day. So uh, right away, um, we started bringing folks to the Capitol to meet with legislators. So every week we would have, um, you know, lobby meetings every day. Um, I would be there just to make sure we had that consistent presence. Um, just so regardless if we won or if we lost, our voices were there, we were represented. And then my uh, friend Katora Heron and I, now it's Representative Heron in Kentucky, um, we started, this is back when she worked at the ACLU of Kentucky with me, um, but we started a group called the Kentucky Smart Justice Advocates, which is a group of directly impacted Kentuckians who came together to work on uh, state legislation. Um, so any bill that we worked on, that we supported, that we opposed, that we introduced, we ran through that group. We literally voted, you know, on whether we would support, whether we would oppose, we would show up in committee meetings. Uh, as I mentioned, we were a constant presence in legislature's offices. Um, so that to me is the best way to do the work to have those voices, it made us so much stronger because within that group, you know, such a diverse group of Kentuckians that had this experience from all around the state, um, all races, genders, um, and, you know, we were able to hear different perspectives. Uh, we were able to hear different reasons why we should support or oppose or what issues sh should we be working on now. That's how I worked at the ACLU of Kentucky and in so many ways still work. Uh, and some of the issues that we worked on and were able to actually get legislation passed, we were able to work on a juvenile justice bill here in Kentucky. There was automatically youth were weighed to adult court. If a firearm was found when a youth was charged with another crime, and now this firearm didn't even have to be used within a crime. It could also just be what was happening was Black youth in Kentucky. Maybe they got pulled over or got in trouble for marijuana or something but there would be a firearm in the car. 
and then all of the kids, it, they would get a way to adult court automatically. So we got a bill passed that got rid of that, um, which was huge for, for kids in Kentucky. We were able to pass two different expungement bills. Um, we were able to pass a bill dealing with probation to help folks get off of probation sooner um, in the state of Kentucky and, and, and most states. Um, the probation population is usually your largest population under control of the state. And often, you know, folks end up doing long sentences because they can't meet these wild stipulations and requirements of probation. So we got that bill passed. I was so privileged to get to work with Katora on Brianna's Law on the state level. Um, she was amazing in that campaign and that got passed. There were two dignity bills for women incarcerated in Kentucky. Amanda, can you just pause and tell us what Brianna's Law is? Yeah, so um, it within 17 days, uh, Katora was able to pass that in Louisville. What it does is ban no-knock warrants. Um, and then on the state level, you know, we were able to pass it too. And in Kentucky, we're super duper <laughs> majority Republican state. Um, and it was really something that, you know, that was able to pass on the state level as well. Um, we were able, I mean, there were like 14 bills altogether. So I will stop <laughs> talking about specific bills. Um, but, you know, the Kentucky Smart Justice Advocates, those directly impacted people. And we were able to team up with very unlikely allies like the um, Kentucky Smart on Crime Coalition, which is, you know, the Kentucky Chamber, Catholic Conference, um, youth advocacy groups. So it was really those directly impacted folks were like, hey, we are willing to work with folks who come to the table, who agree on our vision. And they did that and, you know, made really amazing changes um, in the state of Kentucky and are still over there uh, fighting. Thank you. That's beautiful. Yeah, I just want, I want the listeners to know that, that the Brianna's Law is a reaction to the murder of Brianna Taylor because everybody remembers Brianna Taylor and how she was assassinated in her bed after a no-knock warrant was issued against her boyfriend. And people may not understand how important the activism and the activity of folks like you and Katora Heron, Representative Heron, has been in response to that. That, you know, because sometimes people think that the George Floyd Breonna Taylor protests fizzled and nothing happened. Mm -hmm. It's incredibly important to see how activism bubbles and boils underneath and continues to work and that your work with all the organizations you've named and the people you've named is ongoing and, and continues to be engaged with the police violence represented by um, the name of Brianna Taylor. Yeah. And I mean, 
as you mentioned now, you know, when Katora Heron works on Brianna's Law in Louisville, she worked at the ACLU, was an activist, and then worked on the bill at the state level. The same thing. She was still working at the ACLU, um, an activist in the community, deep ties the the community. And then after that, you know, Representative Heron, she ran for office in the state of Kentucky um, and won a seat and is now in the Kentucky state legislature um, fighting uh, constantly and make sure to uplift Brianna's name in so many situations and as often as possible. So, yeah. I think your victory um, in in process, you know, the kinds of process that you follow at dream.org with your empathy leaders and the federal advisory team that you have, which is may not be seen by some people as clearly as a victory as getting Katora Heron elected to the to the legislature is just as powerful the kinds of activism and organization not just the lobbying but the visioning and the empowering the the raising up of voices is long term just as effective it's about you know building and strengthening the kinds of movement that we need to make our world a better place and i find it very beautiful and inspiring to hear of all the work that's going on in Kentucky that you're a part of. Oh, thank you. And now at dream.org, as I mentioned, we get to do it across the nation. Mississippi is not the easiest environment for this kind of work. Our empathy leader was able to pass a bill there this session. Two days ago out in Oregon, our empathy leader unanimously um, passed a bill out there driven by her and other formerly incarcerated women in Washington. Our empathy leader, Eugene Youngblood, was able to work in coalition and pass a bill that impacts folks that were sentenced as youth out in the state of Washington. And Arkansas, my colleague, Ruby Welch, who's formerly incarcerated, was able to pass a policy that um, suspends fines and fees because so many folks in Arkansas end up back in prison or in jail because of these wildly expensive fines and fees that they um, have to pay. And then in Kentucky, you know, this year we were able to pass a bill too that allows folks to use fentanyl testing strip and, and no longer deems it a crime and takes it out of our possession statute uh, to, so to continue to try to decriminalize, um, you know, drug issues, mental health issues. Um, so yeah, it's beautiful to see it work everywhere. Like it works, like having directly impacted leaders be able to lead and then bring you know, so many different allies to the table, because it isn't that we want to fight this fight alone, <laughs> you know, like we need these broad coalitions, which we've had in every state, 
but it's just amazing to see that model. And I'm so excited to see how much more, you know, we can do. You've worked on such an array of bills. And when I listen to you talk about this list of bills, I hear a a comprehensive practical program for the abolition of mass incarceration, step-by-step with extremely realistic kinds of modifications. You've talked about ending fines and fees, which are not only extractive, but themselves become punitive because they are levied on people who cannot pay and they have punitive policies behind them. You've talked about probation and the slippery slope that it puts a person on back into prison. You've talked about the drug laws and the drug war and the disparate sentencing impacts, um, which have this incredibly racist effect at all levels of the system. You've talked about the criminalization of mental illness and how that lands people in prison. You've talked about transition out of prison. You've talked about dignity laws representation and getting more voices at the table involved in discussions around policy and making policy. It's its an incredibly broad vision. I'd, I'd love to hear, what am I forgetting? What am I leaving out, Amanda? What other kinds of policies are there that activists and organizers around the country should be working on that are moving us towards abolition? The Dignity Campaign at this point, Dream.org has been able to work with empathy leaders, formerly incarcerated folks in 14 different states to pass these type of bills. What they do is specifically for pregnant folks, they ban shackling during childbirth. They actually provide feminine hygiene products. They ensure that Folks that are pregnant or postpartum aren't put in restricted housing. Um, They, you know, in some of our bills provide um, trauma-informed care, you know, doulas for folks that are pregnant, incarcerated. So that's what those bills do when I say dignity. So I'm glad that you lifted that up, that I didn't go into depth about those bills. but. Other policies and procedures to move us toward abolition. I mean, there's so many. Unfortunately, we have a very long way to go. And working with directly impacted folks and being, you know, directly impacted, it can be easy sometimes to get discouraged um, because perhaps we aren't getting across the finish line, all the reforms that we want at that moment. But truly, where we are, it took us a a little while to get here. You know, there has been policy after policy passed uh, to be tough on crime and to enhance the number of folks that are incarcerated, to enhance the amount of time that folks are incarcerated. Um, So we have to keep tearing away at those things. We have to keep tearing away at probation and parole and ensure that folks have 
a better reentry if if they are exposed and must be you know incarcerated under our current laws. But also, I think we have to be vigilant and know that we are still in a time in which we are passing laws that are harsh and will increase the incarcerated population. What we see at dream.org in a lot of our states right now is a lot of fentanyl bills. We see a lot of bills that are being proposed or being passed to increase the amount of time that folks will serve if fentanyl is involved. Um, even in some states, you know, proposals for life sentences. Um, and often these are folks that maybe have a substance use disorder or, you know, it's a crime of survival, you know. Um, so we have been, unfortunately, some of our campaigns have actually moved from proactive like we keep doing the proactive stuff, but are also we are on the defensive in some of our states to fight against these bills. Um, because what we see also, you know, with research from great organizations like Drug Policy Alliance is that the folks who are convicted under these types of laws are disproportionately Black folks and folks of color, which I know will surprise no one. So while we have to continue to push, you know, to look at our drug laws, to look at, you know, bills like, you know, getting rid of life without parole for a youth, you know, there's so many different bills that we work on. I think that it's important too, right now in this moment, to know that that defensive work is very vital also. Yeah, yeah. And you're also pointing, I think, to the need to work on the adjacent issues of racism in any register of the problems with our healthcare system and mm -hmm. our healthcare systems. And, you know, the truism that any genuinely anti-racist work, including work to improve healthcare access and mental healthcare access for people who aren't wealthy, is work that will diminish the reach of the criminal legal system. Do you put that so eloquently? And that's 100% correct. So Amanda Hall, it's really been a pleasure talking to you. Your perspective is so rich and the work you do is absolutely fantastic. And we've covered a lot of what I wanted to ask you. I think I just would like to end by asking you to say anything that you haven't yet said about your perspective on the criminal legal system as somebody who is and has been directly affected by that system. We have to stop using incarceration as the end-all be-all. We need to focus more on community resources, on mental health, on issues of poverty, of trauma. I think that's vitally important and also, I would love listeners to come join us in this fight and join us in this work. Um, you know, I am very fortunate to work at an organization with a really easy name. 
So literally to find us, to look us up, to join our empathy network, to apply to the cohort, um, to even fund our work or contact us at dream.org. This has been KiteLine. Please reach out if you have a news item we should cover, if you want to volunteer, or just to tell your story. Email us at kiteline at wfhb.org or send us a letter at kiteline, care of WFHB, 108 West 4th Street, Bloomington, Indiana, 47404. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Thank you for listening.